Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Amen. Thank you again, Joe and team. You know, we thank them every week, and yet we take them for granted every week. And I'm just so thankful for how they serve us as a body and prepare us, lead us into worship. It is a blessing, their time and energy and practice and prayer that goes into that. Well, it would be a gross understatement to say that the events of the past two years have been unexpected. One needs only to consider our own storied existence over this time frame here at Grace Life to see a myriad of examples of events and developments which even the wisest and most astute here did not see coming. Who knew that the most dynamic, the most successful, the most cutting-edge strategy for church growth in our time would be this. Stay open. (laughs) Who knew that the price of local, national, and even global news coverage for the headship of Christ over the church would be an almost 40-day incarceration? Who knew that a tiger in the zoo requires only one fence, but that a church building requires three layers of fence, a SWAT team, and three months of 24-hour surveillance? Who knew that Canada even had an underground church? If there is one heading or one umbrella, if you will, under which we might place much of what we have had to work out with fear and trembling in this recent season, it would be the doctrine of ecclesiology. That is, the doctrine of the church. This word finds its origin in ecclesia, simply put, the gathering or assembly. And in New Testament times, the church is a reference to believers and not a building. We here at Grace Life would ascribe to this same understanding. A number of years ago, Steve Lawson released a book titled Famine in the Land, in which he detailed a famine for the preaching of God's word. As we have seen in recent years, this famine has so affected much of the professing evangelical small C church that in too many churches, to use the biblical analogy of marriage, the congregation could at best be described as neglected and a malnourished bride. A robust biblical understanding of the role, authority, and necessity of the church has been found to be all too rare. However, we are secure and comforted in the knowledge that the true bride, the capital C church, has only undergone that which has been devised for her good and for God's glory. In retrospect, not minimizing the loss of friendships, the loss of familial relationships, the loss of employment, even the loss of physical life, I can only describe this season as intensely beneficial to the body of Christ. 
would you not agree that you have been refocused, renewed, even recalibrated with regards to your awareness of your spiritual health? What precious kernels remain after the winnowing of our recent trials? Is his word not sweeter? Is his grace not more amazing? Are those seated with you here today not more dear and more precious? You see, ecclesiology is larger than simply staying open. In this season, we have also come to see more fully the importance of the body, its function, and why it is needful, necessary, and non-negotiable that this, mo- this body must gather together. As we will see today, this body should want to gather together because this body is to be characterized by a distinct love for one another. Now, I failed to get my sermon title and passage to Mark this week. So this is an opportunity for you to love the body, me specifically. I know some of you note takers were already looking to see, well, what's the passage I want to get my notes started Today we will be in 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 22, through to chapter 2, verse 3. And the title of my message today is, For the Love of the Body. First Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, I've chosen this passage today for our study for a few reasons, the first of which because I've been so richly blessed in studying through this passage in our small group Bible study these past few months. I also believe that it so clearly dovetails with our recent study of the command in John 15 to love one another. I truly believe that there is something very urgent here for our immediate attention today. Have you ever considered why it seems so difficult to one, 
articulate what it means to practically love one another and two, to practically act in this way. Why is this so difficult? Well, with the rapid growth that we have experienced as a body, there comes a host of potential struggles and turmoil directly related with this need to love. Expectations will be left unfulfilled. Hopes will be met with disappointment. Other people will take your seat. Other people have more friends than you. Other people seem happier than you, more attractive, smarter, or more talented than you. He sings too loud. Her kids are poorly behaved. The coffee is too strong. The coffee is too weak. Maybe you prefer the pastor who spoke last week better. If that's the case, tell me next week. (laughs) You see, when you get down to the daily realities of the Christian walk, it is essential that you clearly understand the uniqueness of the love you enjoy in and for the body in order for each of you to most glorify God in your service to one another. And we will examine this today through the following three perspectives, which will serve as our headings. First, the obedience of our love in verse 22 obedience of our love. Secondly, the origin of our love, verses 23 to 25. And third, the opposition of our love, chapter two, verse one to three. Let's begin. Heading number one, obedience of our love. We see again in verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. In the preceding verses of this chapter, Peter has already discussed the living heavenly hope, which motivates the Christian believer to persevere through earthly trials, producing God-honoring, God-glorifying testimonies of inexpressible joy and devoted hearts in Christians as they are sanctified towards holiness through faith in Christ. This has been the subject of the intro of his letter. It is first of all imperative here to identify that Peter's audience are Christians who have been scattered geographically due to their religious persecution following the destruction of Rome. Nero, blaming the Christians for starting the fires which destroyed Rome, used them as a scapegoat turning the anger of the Roman people towards this early and primarily Gentile church. You see, we are by no means the first group of people in history to be labeled extremists with unacceptable views by their rulers who are haters of God. However, as your lives also testify, Peter exhorted them that though they had been distressed by various trials, Verse six, it was so that the proof of their faith may be found to result 
in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse seven. What a tender kindness of the Lord to give us this section of his word, that we might know him and know his truth and also know his faithfulness to a people with which we ought to feel a kinship as we go through similar, albeit lesser, persecution. Knowing that these Gentiles had almost certainly forfeited friends and family, possibly jobs and property, and likely knowing some who had even been martyred, we know without a doubt that these believers are not the product of a socially acceptable or culturally embraced faith. These believers knew what it was to pick up their cross and follow Christ. Peter states first that they have in obedience to the truth, purified their souls. Exactly what truth are they obeying? Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only truth capable of changing hearts, bearing the fruit of obedience and purifying souls. This obedience also speaks to an effort on the part of a Christian to repent of sin, to flee the works of the former man, purifying their soul through an intentional and active pursuit of holiness. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2 and 3. Read this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. One of the primary results of this obedience to the truth is a sincere love for the brethren. Sincere means lacking pretense, without hypocrisy, literally without wax, wax being used to fill cracks or flaws in pottery, to be advertised as without wax meant to be without flaws, without imperfections or hidden deficiencies. Why is this word so important here? Well, because prior to being born again, we were not capable of this type of love. Our love was self-serving, self-seeking, and self-centered. It was riddled with imperfections and flaws. Peter is pointing out the distinct nature of this new love, that it is sincere. Consider for a second who is giving this exhortation. The apostle Peter, no doubt, clearly remembered one of his final interactions with the risen Christ recorded in John 21. John 21, 17 reads, and he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Love for Christ must necessarily result in the love for those that are his. Do you see how Peter's understanding and affection 
had grown in the time between this epistle and that conversation on the beach. Furthermore, who are the brethren? This refers to a brother in Christ, a co-heir and member of the same heavenly family. This is any genuine Christian who is part of the body of Christ. A genuine, sincere love for other Christians is a necessary mark of Christ's regenerating work in the heart. In fact, this is a notable and significant theme throughout the New Testament as imperfect believers found themselves grouped together with other imperfect believers, potentially having nothing of earthly value in common. But they had the most significant thing in common that is possible, salvation in Christ. Listen and consider to only a few of the many passages that reveal the nature of this love. Philippians 2, 1 to 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or later in the same chapter, verses 15 to 16, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Peter, back to First Peter, is here exhorting fellow believers to exercise this newly enabled love of the brethren, to act on this new affection, this new desire at work, in their new hearts, to pour out affection on others who share in the same heavenly inheritance. Since your obedience to the truth has resulted in a love for the body of Christ, fervently love one another from the heart. To do something fervently is to do it earnestly, intently, or even strenuously. Christian, are you strenuously loving the body of Christ? What does that look like, you say? Well, consider the same, you, same word used in Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Christ prayed fervently for our souls. You may recall in John 15 that we looked at Christ's example and that this example could be classified in three ways, that Christ loved freely, that he loved impartially, 
and that he loved sacrificially. It is this very type of strenuous love that is seen throughout scripture in what are referred to as the one another's. These are composed of approximately 35 distinct instructions and approximately 59 individual uses of the term one another. Take a moment to consider if this command to fervently love one another is reflective of your choices, priorities, thoughts, and actions over the past week. You see, much has been discussed about the one another's of the Bible, but the discussion of them accomplishes nothing of their purpose. Have you loved the body this week? Have you served, cared for, or showed preference or blessed other members of Christ's body? This is why we did not close our church in accordance with the desires of some who urged us to love our neighbor, whereby we would have turned away from the needs and priority of serving the body in exchange for that which the world perceives as loving. Of course, the world is going to say, you're supposed to love me. They love themselves most and think you should as well. They cannot fathom the kind of love that we are speaking about here. They have no framework for sacrificial, servant-hearted, God-honoring, or Christ-exalting love. This love of the body is an essential part of our ecclesiology. You see, the gathering is more than passionate preaching. You see, passionate preaching must be the product of a love for God. Thereby, sorry, product of a love for God. Therefore, from a desire to be obedient to his word and therefore motivated by a fervent love for the body that cares deeply that you know and grow in the truth. We've seen firstly, the obedience of our love for the brethren. Now, secondly, the origin of our love, the origin of our love. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. What are we to make of this being born again of imperishable seed? The term rendered here could also be read as incorruptible. This seed is a seed that cannot perish or die, that cannot be corrupted by disease or changed by time. To fully grasp all that Peter is trying, tying to this term, we can look back to 1 Peter 1, verse 18, where he has just stated that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Here again, we see Peter's focus on the heavenly reality of the believer's salvation, on the heavenly rewards, despite their current earthly trials. 
it is essential to understand that the believer's redemption is not accomplished with flawed materials. Even our most precious materials, such as gold and silver, are perishable, much less our own works, and are thus insufficient to purchase a lasting freedom from a futile life of sin. In contrast, what can be purchased with the precious blood of the perfect, sinless God-man? Imperishable, incorruptible, eternal salvation. Undeniably, Christ gets what he paid for. Peter uses this term again later in the letter, in chapter 3, verse 4 when he exhorts women to adorn themselves not merely externally, but in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Here again, we see the lasting effect of salvation on the heart and desires of a believer, resulting in a gentle, quiet spirit in place of one that was previously selfish and rebellious. Coming back to verse 23 then, we can see that Peter is attributing this heart of obedience and resulting love for the brethren to the effect of the word of God on the unsaved heart, resulting in a spiritual rebirth. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And as amazing as this process is, there is yet more revealed here. We see that this seed is the living and enduring word of God. Why is it significant to understand that this word is both living and enduring? To say his word is living is to state that it is active, that it is alive, that it is ever relevant. To say that his word will endure is to say that it will remain, that it will last, it will continue. That his word be living, but temporary, or changing is a frightening heresy we see too often played out by those who profess special revelation, new revelation, or the reverse, that his word is no longer relevant. That is to say, he spoke once, but now speaks differently, or now is silent. That is to make it him unable to keep his promises or unworthy of our faith and unable to offer us any comfort. That his word be enduring, but dead, is an equal heresy. In that, it would make his word a mere memorial, unable to actively bring sinners to salvation. To eliminate either of these attributes of his word is to fashion God in our image, effectively casting doubt on his intention or ability to sustain this new birth, its divine nature, and by association, this new love for him and his people. To help his hearers better understand this principle, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 6. We see it here in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Why are we talking about grass? Was Isaiah some type of Hebrew gardener 
Peter is likening the flesh, the product of the first birth, to creation, specifically to grass. The comparison acknowledged that there is even a flower of grass. Similarly, that there is a glory of the flesh, just as you have all seen a beautiful mountain vista with wild flowers. The flesh of man boasts its own glory. The strong, the wise, the victorious, the beautiful, or the lovely. Next time your wife asks you how she looks, tell her she resembles the glory of the flower of grass. But you might want to maintain a healthy distance if you're big on context and intend to finish the verse that the grass withers and the flower falls off. Yes, the flesh has its own glory, but it is perishable. And as we see in Ecclesiastes, it is all vanity. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing people, places, art, jewelry are all perishable. Grass withers and the flower falls off. Then quoting from Isaiah 40, verse eight, we see in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. But the word of the Lord, the imperishable, incorruptible seed, the one that is living and enduring, this precious seed is the one that was planted in the heart of a Christian. If you have repented of your sin and called on Christ as Lord, this is the very seed that was planted in you. And it will not fail. This new love that you experience for God, for Christ, for his word, and for the brethren will not fail. Throughout the New Testament, we see contrast between the first birth and the second or the new birth, the spiritual birth. In the first birth, sin, new birth, holiness. First birth, death, new birth, life. First birth, darkness, new birth, light. In the first, depravity. In the new, perfection. In the first, love of self. In the new, love of others. We have seen first, the obedience of our love. And then secondly, the origin of our love. Let us now conclude with our final point. Third, the opposition to our love. Understanding then that one, obedience to God's word will rightly bring about a sincere and fervent love of the brethren. And that two, this love is to be the product of every spiritual birth, each of which is genuine and eternal. What then is the greatest enemy of our love and unity in the body. What is our greatest opposition? The age-old Sunday school answer is correct. Sin? Yes, sin. Specifically, the disobedience of believers. 
the disobedience of believers, the disobedience to God's word and to his spirit is the single greatest enemy of our unity as the body of Christ. Peter here in chapter two, verse one, presents a short but painfully exhaustive list. Verse one, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This list has aptly been called a list of community-destroying vices. That is to say, congregation-destroying vices. Because until Christ returns, Christians are to be in community, in fellowship, gathering and assembling with the body of Christ. Imperfect sinners with imperfect sinners, glorifying God through innumerable opportunities to die to self, to crucify the flesh, to treat others as more important than yourself. Repenting, forgiving, reconciling, serving, teaching, rebuking, learning, praying, giving, receiving, submitting, discipling, and the list goes on. All of which pursuing Christ-likeness by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. This type of instruction is seen in the New Testament with teaching and instruction going to a variety of churches with a variety of contexts. Because the sanctification of believers in proximity to other believers will inevitably lead to conflict. No need to turn to each of these, for no doubt these will be familiar verses. I simply want you to recognize that disobedience to God's word is not simply found in a few churches or even only in a few individuals in each church. But each of us has within ourselves the tendency and capacity to act or think sinfully with regards to the brethren. James, in James 1.21, says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Paul, to the Colossians in 3.8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Paul, to the church in Ephesus, verse Chapter four, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These instructions are given to Christians. Each of these verses is exhorting believers to lay aside the remaining habits and vestiges of the flesh. Yes, in a general way of life, but specifically with primary consideration to their behavior within the greater body. This command is to put aside, to get rid of like garments, often called putting off, as if removing an unattractive, unflattering article of clothing. This is actually a very helpful analogy. Just imagine yourself wearing clashing colors and patterns and looking in the mirror before you are to be introduced to some great leader or someone you admire. 
Would you not be mortified and quickly throw off the offending article of clothing in search of something more appropriate? My apologies if this hits too close to home for a Sunday morning. What articles of your character, what articles of your character and what accessories of your attitude are least attractive, unsuitable to be worn when you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Let's look at this list together and humbly seek the Lord's illumination in any area which we recognize his spirit's convicting work when viewed in the mirror of his word. First, we see malice. This refers to a general evil or depravity. It is the wickedness that comes from within a person. It may be the desire to see others treated in any fashion below that which you would like to be treated. It might come quickly. It may linger long in wait. Most frequently considered a sin of intent or motive. It might be the most easily visible in our unkind words, which stem from our unkind thoughts. This sin is the seed of many other expressions, but we know it well by the feeling of, I told you so, or you got what you deserved. Malice exposes violence in your heart towards another. So as you put off malice, as you lay this aside, consider Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and not malice. Secondly, deceit. Deceit is fraud, cunning, guile, slyness, trickery. This sin is quite popular in the little white variety, though we have been rightly taught that there is no such thing. This sin ranges from small, seemingly inconsequential protection of our vanity and pride to concealing ongoing and crippling shame. One instance of this type of disobedience will commonly result in a more frequent struggle. Deceit will wrangle words, imply, leave out, take advantage for selfish gain, or avoid detection and negative consequence. As you aim to lay aside deceit, consider instead Ephesians 4. Verse 24, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are to seek to be transparent with one another. Do not guard yourself as you think with deceit. Third, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has been defined as an inconsistency between belief and practice. This implies arrogance and hardness of heart. It's often devoid of sincerity or genuineness. 
This is the root of self-justification in which an action, activity, entertainment choice, or other practice is deemed acceptable for you, but not for others. Or that others deserve a consequence for their practice, but you deserve to receive grace. This is rooted in pride and self-conceit, and when exposed will likely result in defensiveness. This is a large category, our hypocrisy. Covers many other sins that are not listed in this list that we won't cover today. But I pray as you aim to lay aside hypocrisy that you would consider instead Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Fourth, envy. This is a prideful greed, covetousness. This is wanting for yourself that which belongs to or is received by others. Abilities, physical appearance, authority, possessions, social status, or acceptance. This is a sin of the heart and will most often be expressed in the thought of Why not me? Or it's not fair. As you lay aside envy, consider instead Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Finally, fifth, slander. Slander is evil speaking, detraction, backbiting, defamation. The sin is committed with the tongue or now equally often the fingers. It is a desire to elevate yourself through lowering the opinion held of another. It may be to call into question or cast doubt or suspicion on another person's intentions abilities, or motives. It can easily arise out of some of the previously discussed sins of malice, deceit, or envy. They will lead to slander. So as you aim to lay aside slander, consider instead Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. For a short list, I'm sure you will agree that there is sufficient material here with which to occupy yourselves much longer than you would like. You see, sanctification is most definitely a process. It is an ongoing mortification, a killing of sin. Therefore, be encouraged and remember what Peter says. Verse two, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Peter here uses the term for a just born or born moments ago infant. 
How many desires does a newborn baby have? One. That just-born infant has one desire, one instinct, one singular and very strongly felt need, hunger. We are to live as just-born spiritual infants with regards to our hunger and dependence on the word of God for the purpose of our growth in Christ-likeness. The emphasis of this reference to milk is not that it would be elementary and basic, as in 1 Corinthians, but that we as believers hunger for all that it provides as our one supreme desire. Finally, verse three, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is to say, you are indeed a Christian. You have received the imperishable seed of God's word. And therefore, you have been born again. If you are found in Christ and are saved by faith alone and no merit of your own, if you have tasted this kindness, you will desire to obey the Lord, to honor Christ as the outworking of a thankful heart. You will have a love for the brethren that is growing and active. If you do not have this love, if you have not submitted your life to Christ and you are enslaved in your sin, Repent, call out this day to Christ that you might be saved, that you might receive this imperishable seed. To the many new faces and those that are more recently come to Grace Life who are asking, how can we be part of a living and vibrant and healthy church? or to those that have been coming consistently now for some time who are asking, how can we join in and participate in making Grace Life the church that it desires to be? Or to those who have called Grace Life home for many years who are asking, how can we serve and meet the needs of our growing body? The answer to each of you is the same. By submitting yourselves to God's word, laying aside the deeds of the flesh and putting on the deeds of the incorruptible new nature. In our obedience, may we fervently love one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enable us, equip us, strengthen us, for this task, that we might be obedient to you as fruit of your Spirit's work in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this distinct love that we share for one another and help us to walk in obedience as we fervently love those that you have created in your image and placed in our lives for our benefit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.